0: You're listening to episode 361 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu, and this episode is ostensibly about Groff, and I guess it will be a little bit about Groff. But actually, more specifically, it's going to be about PDF Mom. The... possibly the, the big saving grace of Groff. You'll find out why in a, in a little while, and, and I hope I'm not being too harsh on Groff by calling PDF Mom that, or heaping too much expectation on PDF Mom. Either way, we're gonna talk about that first, and then we'll get into the the last bits and bobs of Groff. I don't want to spend any more episodes on Groff, I think we, we all get the point, but um, there is a lot in this package. And, of course, that is what we're doing in this uh, series right now. We're going through every single package that you get on Slackware. You might not have all these packages on your distribution if you're not running Slackware, but you have them available in your software repository, undoubtedly. Groff, which is what we're talking about today and for the past two episodes, is most certainly on your distribution already, and that is kind of one of its main benefits, is that it is a toolchain for writing content and translating it into different formats, a couple of different formats, uh, HTML, MAN, for, for MAN pages, PDF, uh, postscript, and probably some other, oh, DVI, I guess, others that I'm not thinking of. But first and foremost, out of all the Binaries that we've discussed within Grof so far. I want to skip ahead to the, to the middle of the end to PDF mom. Now, PDF mom, like Grof itself, is a little bit more than just a command. It is also a syntax, and well, no, I guess it's not technically. Mom is the syntax. What is mom? Well, it means my other macros or my own macros or if you really want to go crazy, you could say maximum overdrive macros. That's from the, that's from the, uh, the homepage of, of Shafter.ca slash mom. Point is that they're a set of macros for Groth, and it kind of answers the question of uh, what would happen if someone took the engine that Groth provides and built a new car around it. That is to say, Groff is really cool, because it exists by default, it has all these text processing powers, but all those weird macros, or rather, sorry, all of those weird requests and arguments, they're a little bit difficult maybe to comprehend or to wrap your head around and so on. I don't know how true that is, I mean .th for title heading and .sh for subheading and so on, it's not... I, I wouldn't say that it was an impossible feat understand and to even remember those those requests that said they're a little bit different they're they're a little bit far afield from what we're used to arguably and so what someone has done the creator of mom has done is they created a um an arguably simplified set of requests and placed it into a set of macros so that you can use graph without knowing the obscure requests that, under normal circumstance, you'd, you'd have to know. It's a pretty cool idea. I, I really like it because I love the idea of building off of someone else's work in open source. I mean, that's what open source is all about. And so the idea of, of taking this perfectly acceptable text processing machine, mechanism and and sort of Remixing it and putting your own spin on that—that's just a, a really really perfect open source idea to me. So how simple is this? Um, I, I I I don't know. I, I feel like it's um, a little you know half what is it half a dozen of this, uh, six of the other, whatever it, that expression is. I mean it it's it is still markup. Um, the markup mixes style and con- uh, style and uh, content, which isn't necessarily, you know, sort of in this enlightened age of separating style from content seems to not be the typical thing. You know, we we tend to avoid that sort of thing. Um, that said, it it is it feels, you know, I mean, certainly the tags are are human readable and familiar. They they they're, they are arguably a lot more self-explanatory than .th. .th. Sh and so on. Um, now I don't know all of the all of the macros available, and so I'm going to kind of stumble through parts of this. But for instance, for instance, there is a macro called Title, uh, and Title is the macro that that um, that contains the title of your document. So for instance, if we if we open up an empty text document, the first thing that we would we would need to do is create um, a title for our document, and that would be .dot .title, T-I-T-L-E, all capital, and then um, a space or some number of spaces, quote, my example, momdoc, close quote. And then we'll do a .dot .author, A-U-T-H-O-R, all capital, on the next line, and again, a space or some number of spaces, and I'll put in quotes here, two, And we can give it a chapter title, or a chapter number, rather. So that'll be dot chapter space one. Okay, so that's that's the metadata. That's the the document properties, as it were. After that, we can choose a template that we want to use. So the templating um, macro is dot uh, dot doc type d o c t y p e dot doc type, and in this case, it is a chapter. This is a chapter doc type. That is. Um, that's from a collection, all of these are macros, right? So so you kind of have to, if you want to find out all of the things that are available to you, you need to become familiar with the mom set of macros, just like any other markup language that you are trying to learn. There are certain, or even a markdown language, less so in markdown ideally, but there's still syntax in markdown, so... In a markup language, you need to know what tags are available to you. So for instance, in this case, knowing that there is a dot .doc type macro means that then you would want to look up what doc types there are available. Turns out there's a default which Is whatever is that's what you get if you don't use a dot doc type um, header at all or a dot doc type uh, macro at all. There's chapter and then there's named and then I think there's a uh, oh yeah letter and slides and that looks like it's about it. Yeah, that's true and it um that that particular macro controls what is printed for instance at the header of the page is it just the title of the document or is it a chapter number and then the title and then the page number and so on so those are those are templates essentially all right next line we could do print style and print style again it's another another macro it it defines what kind of processing it assume it it will do when you when you send it out to um to another format Uh, there's typeset, there's typewrite, and then there's single space. Typewritten is double-spaced. And finally, you can control a little bit of style, which again, like I say, not sure about um, the idea of putting style in the source document, um, but I think there's an argument that keeping it in the header is sort of permissive like that's kind of allowable right we could we could do that we can sneak a little bit of style into a source document at the head as long as we don't go changing it all over the place later on in the document right well we'll see about that uh well we won't i'm not going to get that deep into this but if if i was using it on a day-to-day basis i would I, I do wonder how that would work out if I needed to change, for instance, I don't know, the color of my chapter headings, or, or the, like, the color of the text, or um, maybe I wanted to adjust the, the font for just code snippets and so on. H- how is that done? How is that executed? Is it done within the file, or is it a template that'll get applied? Who knows? I don't know. I haven't looked at it that deeply. But um, once you're finished your... No, wait, so- sorry, so we have to do the, the type style. And there's a couple of different, um, couple of different options there. Once again, you can do. Oh, in typesetting, you can also set the page size. That's actually pretty significant uh, for me, at least, because I don't use letter size page. I use um, whatever it is, A4. So um, under. Uh, under the the styling we can adjust for instance the size of the font so dot pt underscore size we could set that to 10-point font and for the letting we could say dot ls for leading uh, and we'll set that to 12 points so there you know to kinda control where where the where the letters fall on the on whatever is considered the baseline and that's that's enough for the sample document after that we can just start writing. Now there's don't 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 take my simple heading to 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 mean that there aren't a lot of there there's not a lot of control within the the syntax of Mom because there there's quite a lot more that you could choose from. There are lots of different options here that you could you could you know, you can do you you can adjust kerning. you can adjust the gutter of the page, the ligature, the the point size. Well, we did that. Um, and so on. So and the the page size, like I said. So there's there there are lots of different options there, and um, that's fine. What we're going to do though is start typing. And so the start of my document and the end of my my header is going to start with a dot start. So that's kind of setting my style to um, you know in HTML terms, it would sort of be like the the main the main div or in word processors, you know, it might be a transition from, for instance, a, a heading, an H1, or whatever they call it in word processors, and then um, to normal text, like a body text, whatever. So I'll just do dot .start, all, again, all capitals, and then I can just type in some text. So this is some sample text. I hope it comes out all right. It probably will, thanks to PDF Mom. And I'll close I'll close that document. And now I can just run PDF mom on this this document, which is the command that we're we're talking about, PDF mom. So I'm gonna do PDF mom uh example dot mom, that's what I called the file, and then I'm gonna redirect that into mom.pdf. And that happened pretty quickly, and so I'll ocular mom.pdf. And here we go. It's it's um kind of disappointingly single paged, obviously there's not a whole lot of text here, but um it, it definitely is a chapter one. It says there's some sample text. Hope it comes out alright. Probably will thanks to PFMO. And all of that's on one line of course because as we know Graf takes your separate lines and concatenates them pretty much into one into one paragraph. Now we know from from grof how we could control that and that would be to go back into our sample file. Um, and this time I, I'm going to leave all that, uh, that'll be our introductory paragraph, and then I'm going to do a .pp for a new paragraph, and um, I'm just going to import some some boilerplate text, if I can find some. There we go, I got some boilerplate text, a bunch of boilerplate text, which I'll just separate all the blank lines, I'm going to put a .pp between, so now I've got 23 lines of, of, text, a couple more than that actually. I, I might as well mention here that when writing a lot of text, especially in a mark up or markdown language where you can afford this luxury, I put every sentence on a new line, which seems, it feels strange when you first start doing it, Um, but it's essentially treating your text like code, because when you feed that to git, for instance, if you change one letter on one line, then git can zero in exactly on that line and that one letter change, and it is a tiny little commit that you've made. Whereas if if you've got a whole paragraph on one line, then to git, that whole paragraph has changed. Quite a lot. That's a, that's a larger commit. Now, if if you if it's even worse and the whole page is on one line, then uh, obviously it's a huge change. So I, I like to put everything on a separate line. And and if you're using a markup or a markdown language, then there's no I don't think there's any reason not to do that because uh, y- y- the paragraphs will be recognized by by the by the markup language just as you'd expect. So I've just processed this with um, with PDFMom again, and ocular mom.pdf, and now I've got a chapter one, and then I've got my first paragraph, and the second, and the third, and the fourth paragraphs. And it looks very nice, it looks very professional, it looks exactly like you'd you'd expect from a, a typesetting application, I mean it really does, it looks... This could be the output of, for instance, Pandoc, or, or DocBook, or, or, you know, OpenOffice, or, or LibreOffice, whatever. It's it's It looks very, very nice. So the first paragraph is not indented, and whether that is a problem for you or not depends on what you're looking for. Um, but if I wanted to indent it, you know, give it that initial tab, for instance, then I could do... A um, a .pp at the beginning of you know right after my start macro and and then it would um, it would indent that accordingly. Or if I want to lose those entirely, I could use instead of the .pp request or macro, I could use the i .ip uh, request and that wouldn't indent it at all. So if I wanted that sort of fresh new we don't indent paragraph look, I could I could mess around with that. And there's a there's a focus here i think if you look at the the options that you have on the mom documentation there's a focus on providing a, a rudimentary word processor experience, meaning the, the expectations you might have from an old-school word processor is very much present here. So, for instance, if you want to force a line break, that seems like a simple task. But, it's like I mean, in a word processor, I think that would be a simple task. But in markup and markdown, a lot of times it's all programmed not to do that. It eats white space. Uh, it 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 collapses white space down to one either you know one space or maybe one line. People get frustrated about that sometimes. They they want to, they want to have more control over the the style applied to their content. And there are quote unquote right ways to do that either in CSS or in XSL or whatever your you know pick your poison. Uh, and in with mom. It just provides you with a line break macro. You put that into your document, and now you've got a line break. I guess in a way, it, it does feel a little bit like Latex to me, with almost completely no experience with a text language. But from what I've seen, you can insert like arbitrary uh, control commands in, in a Latex document. I mean, you can do that, for instance, with DocBook and XSL. You can, you can design your own line break. Uh, macro for better, for for lack of a better term, but it is something that you have to do, sort of, yourself, and then you've made up this new tag, and you insert the tag into your document, and that's what you have, and it is, like I say, it's considered something that you're not supposed to do, because the the style shouldn't ever intermingle with your content, and there are good reasons for that, that's not just sort of a trite, like, this is the way we do things, I mean, there, there really are very good reasons to do that, and if you've ever maintained large sets of documentation you'll know those those reasons you'll know you you'll be familiar with oh i remember that one time i had to grep through an entire um source you know an entire tree of of source files trying to find this combination of really poor choices and because they didn't do it consistently sometimes the order was width and then of co- uh, foreground color and then other times it was foreground color and then width and other times it was single quotes around the style and other times it was double quotes and so on so you'll know the 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 problem that that can introduce and you'll know that when you export to for instance i don't know epub versus pdf you have a different set of concerns over style so it's there's a good reason for separating that content out from the style that said not everyone is doing that kind of documentation and so if you find yourself maybe in between well I want to maintain my source as essentially code but I'm not going to sign up for this sort of super formalized separating content from style and learning a whole new uh, complex build system and so on mom might be something to look at I mean it might not be there's there's a, lots of other options out there but mom exists the back end is Grof, and therefore the back end exists on your system I'm almost sure of it if it's a linux system I mean there's there's the man pages that you're already, you already you already have access to more more than likely so There's some amount of graph on your system already, meaning that you can probably process the mom set of macros. And I guess more to the point of this episode, that is what PDF mom is. So if we have this sample mom document, running it through pdf mom generates the pdf it looks very attractive it looks very professional it's all from a source from a single source and it's it's from a source that you can you can submit to git and track with git and you can run diffs against or make what was it make diff graph or whatever um, you can do all those th- sorts of things but you end up with this really really attractive pdf document that's pdf mom let's have some coffee <laughs> has been acquired, and it's time to finish up the Groff overview. This is um, the third episode on Groff, so I want to get through the rest of it rather quickly. Which means, unfortunately, we'll, we'll kind of we're going to bypass a couple of them. I mean, we're not going to pass them by completely, but we're not going to talk about them in depth because truly, once you get the hang of a couple of different commands then it all starts to look the same uh, but first so so in the previous episode we left off with uh, grog which was grof guess it it, it told you what groff command it thought you should run given some cer- uh, specific input file that's useful next up is grow lbp and grow lj4 these are um front or back ends rather for grof output specific devices. So the Grow LBP goes out to some kind of uh, Canon LBP model laser printer, and Grow LJ4 goes out to, I think, an HP LaserJet 4 or something like that. I don't know whether those backends are necessary because those printers specifically don't read PostScript. Maybe they have some kind of other language that they process. I'm not sure, but those are the two that exist for whatever reason, and uh, I don't want to talk about them because they're not that useful. The next one uh, after that is Grow PDF and Grow PS, and these are front ends for graph to help you avoid the laborious task of typing in dash capital T PDF or dash capital T PS. I'm really not too sure why these things exist because, I mean, really, you you can do as far as I can tell they don't do anything aside from what uh, graph dash t pdf does really so I'm not exactly sure what the advantage of having these these little front ends what what the, what why they're here um one thing that might be because of because of these front ends, you get new options. So, for instance, dash p for paper size, dash y for foundry, dash uh, for a font a font house, um, dash uh, what was it? So, so uh, dash uh, something else to define what um, what PDF format compatibility format to 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 account for and so on. So um, maybe that's maybe that's the reason. Okay, so after that, there's a grotty G-R-O-T-T-Y. This is a Groff driver for typewriter-like devices. This is to send Groff to a device uh, that is ASCII, well, not, not necessarily ASCII, but, but that is text-based. So for instance, dash capital T ASCII, dash capital T UTF-8, dash capital T Latin 1, dash capital T whatever other encoding format happens to be on your on your system. So that's the G-R-O-T-T-Y driver, or, or rather front end. And again, you can find what drivers your systems uh, happens to have installed by looking in user share, graph, and then the, the version of of whatever you have installed. And then slash font will show you all the different fonts of, it, or rather all the different devices uh, available that, you know, by nature, contain different font references. So, for instance, I see here dev ASCII, I see dev HTML, that's a useful one, dev LBP, dev LJ4, we know that exists because we have the LBP and the LJ4 devices, dev DVI, which we talked about I think last time, grow DVI, dev UTF-8, and so on. So you can, you can kinda get a feel for your targets through through looking at user share graph version fonts. Next in the list is GXDITView, GXDITView. This is a strange one, I can't get it to work. Uh, that's the short answer. The longer answer is that GXDITView is kind of an X-Man if you've ever seen, I think it was called X-Man, um, just a, a really basic X11, X11 application that displays man pages, so that you can kind of scroll through in a, in a graphical interface. Doesn't seem that big of a deal to me, I never really bothered using external viewers for man pages. I know that Conqueror could do it as well. I, I don't see the point, I, I think that they're fine in the terminal, so I don't really tend to mess around with those, but that's what apparently GXDIT view is, except that it doesn't seem to work. So the man page for GXDIT view, doesn't give me any sample commands it gives me strangely sample graph commands but not the command to actually make this application work now if i do the the sort of the obvious gxdit view and then point it at a graph file or a, a man page in this in this case which i happen to have ls.1 i I've just z- 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 catted that from user share uh, user man man1 ls.1.gz and then cat is z- that zcat that here to ls1 gxdit view ls.1 it opens to a blank window there's no no text here if i left click there's a, a menu but i can't seem to click on any of the selections so i'm not really sure what the heck is going on there interestingly i can get this thing to show me text if I use this graph command that the gxdip view gives me, which again, I don't know why there's a command that then points you to a different command. So if I do a zcat user man man 1 ls 1.gz, one for instance, and then pipe that to graph dash capital T x 100 dash 12 dash man, dash rs12, then I get my fancy graphical window, um, with the man page all formatted correctly. I c- can't seem to do any mouse interactions with it, but I can arrow through it. And so that's, that's kind of as far as I've gotten with this one. And it's really quite puzzling to me. I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the point is is, and certainly I wouldn't want to go to all that trouble just to view a man page. I would just, I would think that just typing in man ls would be the the quicker and easier way. So that one puzzles me a lot. I'm not really sure what that's all about. hpf2dit is uh, a command that I'm not going to bother with, but it does exist. hpf2dit um, is a font description file you will remember this from the uh, X what was it Xpm to HPF or something like that uh, so these are it's manipulating font descriptions uh, for use with with Grof. and like I said a couple episodes ago I don't really see the the reason we would need that in a in, in the modern age next up is a couple of bibliography commands, and these are interesting in theory and turned out to be a little bit underwhelming in practice, but the, the these, there are three or four, depends on how you look at it, bibliography commands. There's index bib, look bib, and look bib. That's lk bib and l-o-o-k bib. And the theory, oh, and refer, r-e-f-e-r, refer. And the theory here is that you should be able to apparently make citations, like in a bibliography, and run it through index bib and generate this kind of index file of all the books that you have available to to reference in whatever you're working on. Now, I haven't done a bibliography in ages. I mean, I I did them in school, probably. I I probably was required to do that for some uh, rudimentary English uh, composition class, but I, I haven't looked at a bibliography, or rather, I haven't had to do a bibliography, bibliography sense, So I'm, I'm not too clear on sort of the workflow here, but it sounds like if you were writing a paper, maybe you would have your your bibliography, your, your sort of your library in an index file, and then when you wanted to look up an author or a work, you could then query that index file with look bib. That's the theory. In practice, I am finding that index bib produces something that is not parsable by uh look bib. So for instance, if I create a file called graph and I make an entry xp called uh dot i, everyone's a critic, and then Underground Press, March two thousand two. That this is a sample bibliography entry from the graph manual. And I'll do a similar one uh, under that. So I've got two entries in this in this graph file that have been that are citations. So now if I do index bib and then point it at bib.graph, that produces, I think, an index file called bib.graph.i Now if I do a cat of bib.graph.i I I get binary data. So, and if I can, if I run bib.graph.i If I do a file on that, it tells me it's data. So in theory, I should be able to then run lookbib on the index that I've just created because lkbib uh, says that it searches bibliographic databases, searches bibliographic databases for references that contain the keys, key, and prints any reference found on the standard output. So if I do lkbib and then dash p for the file, I need to define the file name. So I'll um, define it as bi- bib.graph.i. And then I need to give it the key that I'm looking for, and I know that the the person's name was blogs, so I'll I'll type that out as my key. Unfortunately, it just it tells me that the database bib.graph.i is a binary file, and uh, it I guess it can't be searched. However, I can use lkbib to search through my source file, the one that I didn't run through indexbib. So if I do lkbib. Dash pbib. graph, just the source file the plain text and look for blogs. then it successfully finds just the entry for blogs, not my second entry for bogan Franz bogen. Um, these are names from sample files i'm'm I'm, I'm only partly making some of them up I think um, it, it finds that entry and it gives me the title of the, of the book and the publisher and 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 such and the summary and, and so on. So that does kind of work, um, just not exactly how I would have imagined it would work. And then if we look at look bib, L-O-O-K-B-I-B, uh, it appears to be an interactive prompt style um, application. So if I type in look bib, L-O-O-K-B-I-B, and then we'll, we'll point it to bib.graph.i, it tells me that's an error, there's no database found there. Take away the I, so now I'm pointing again at just the at just the um, just the source file. Then I can tell it to uh, search for blogs, for instance, and it returns the entry. So and gives me a, a new lookbib prompt. So it's very interactive. Think about the think about the um, Python the idle prompt, that sort of thing, it kind of captures your cursor, you're typing into it, you're in this sort of mode of searching this file. I I can't see myself ever using that one, certainly, that seems a little bit odd to me, I'm not sure why why anyone would want to sort of get that deep into citations, but maybe that is a common thing, maybe if, if you're Writing something and you have you know twenty different authors and you need all the specifics, then maybe it is easier maybe to just stay in that prompt and you're just typing in the name of the author or the the work and, and so on. Um, so those are the bibliography commands and I don't know if I mean the dash p file name option should or the dash p option is followed by a file name from from the man page says it should set that as the database. And, and I don't know if it's just not working, and it really, really wants to look in the default location for its database, which apparently it does have. There's a default location somewhere on the file system. I checked. I don't have one. Uh, I don't know how it's supposed to get there, because it's not in your home folder. It's like a system-wide thing. So it, it's all sort of a foreign world to me, to be honest. I'm not exactly sure what the intended workflow is there uh, or why the override doesn't appear to be working. That's that's all I'm going to say about index look and look bib. The other option here is refer, which I know I'm skipping around here in the package. I'm not going by alphabetical uh, necessarily, but topical works. So there's refer. And refer is part of the graph document formatting system. It copies the contents of a file name to the standard output, except that lines between a dot bracket and a dot bracket, so dot open bracket, dot close bracket, are interpreted as citations. Lines between dot R1 and R- dot R2 are interpreted as commands about how citations are to be processed. So this to me sounds like it's getting into the formatting of biblio bibliographic entries uh, in ways that I certainly wouldn't want to to explore myself. I think um, I know that there are different formats for bibliographies. So, you know, there's MLA and um, I don't know AP style guide, uh, IBM style guide. There's a bunch of different style guides out there. They all have apparently their own different way of formatting these things, uh, so that I guess their audiences who are familiar with that style of notation kind of knows where to look, but that's that's getting into some detail that I just I don't care about yet. And if I ever start writing academic papers, then I guess I'll start to care. Possibly, I don't know. Maybe Latex or, or DocBook has a better way of managing that stuff anyway. Um, okay, so the next one alphabetically, again, is uh, mmGraph, which is a, a preprocessor for graph. It, uh, is used for expanding cross references in MM. So uh, there's a, a front end to this macro for graph underscore MM. And uh, once again, I think we'll just assume that that's that's some that's a, a, a macro set and a preprocessor that we we would use it the same way that we would use EQN and Chem and all the others. LilyPond and so on. Uh, here's another. Uh, speaking of EQN. Here's in Eqn format equations for ASCII output so in Eqn is a shell script that invokes Eqn with the ASCII output devi- uh, device so that's dash capital T ASCII and it, it simply ensures that your EqN equations are processed as as text so um, I don't think we need to go over that and I, I really don't know enough about equations to know what proper formatting for that output would even look like i mean i guess it would have to be the same as eqn notation um but that's that's the way that you would want to process that in eqn okay in roth is one of the originals i mean it is a it is a it's a roth so there was trough and in and then gnu trough better known as Grof. if there is something that you know works only in inrof then this is one of those things you would want to use the inrof script for it it it's an emulation of inrof using graph it only works with ascii utf-8 uh, latin 1 and cp 1047 so it's uh it's it's probably, I'm I'm imagining, I haven't done a whole lot of research into this, but I'm imagining that InRoth was a little bit less featureful than Graf, and so sometimes, for whatever reason, you might need to to dumb down Graf and and use InRoth for that. Now, I could be wrong, I might be slandering InRoth, but I do feel like that's that's kind of been a thing, and even if that's not the case here, I think it's worth pondering for a moment how free software, I think, especially back in the 80s, and probably 90s, and now, but definitely in the 80s, there was this, there was a, there really was a, an easy sort of, there was an inroad, because it was like the free software version of something could offer a bunch more options. And it was kind of a, for lack of a better term, I know this gets overused and is almost too precise for computers right now, but it's a binary system in a way. Like, you open up your man page, and you look, and you th- and you look if an option is available, and it's either available, or it's not available. And I feel like, at one point, you could do that on a, a Unix system, you know, copyright branded trademarked unix system and and you might find oh well that that option is is not there and then you might think to yourself gosh um janet over in accounting was just telling me the other day about this cool open source version of this command and i'm pretty sure she said it has this particular option the foobar option let me check that out And so you go get the open source version and you open up the man page and it's like two screenfuls instead of one screenful because it has all these extra options that people have contributed back to the project. I gotta imagine that was an influence in the the propagation of the free software versions of a bunch of the Unix stuff, because it was just kind of a night and day difference. And please, if you're someone who's used both and kind of have experience in this i'd love to hear from you but i'm just imagining a time where it was a very direct sort of competition sort of like there's this there's this broken version and there's this version with a bunch of cool new options that that are you know too crazy for the the conservative unix company to let into their their code but the free software version has all of the options and i mean you can kind of emulate this in a way, right now, if you go to a BSD system, and you do a, you know, just pick, pick whatever command you want, look at the man page, and just look at how many options are, are not there, or are, are different, and then go to the Linux system, look at the same command, and see what options aren't there, or are different, and sometimes it is a case of, oh my gosh, there are so many more options here on this one, and not on that one, some, sometimes it's just that, oh, there's a real, just a complete, there's a smattering of both. They, they, they've clearly borrowed from each other. So, you know, and that's just because I think of a different lineage, a different code base, different versions of the same commands. People have different ideas. Obviously, BSD isn't closed and reserved like like a corporate Unix would have been. It, it is just a different source. So you have the the uh, sort of a variation in what you end up having in the commands. So this is truly just an emulation of of that experience. But if you want to do that, if you haven't done that, you should do that. You should literally do that, because it is interesting, and I think important, to try a couple of different POSIX systems. Because you can get locked into, like, well, this is the only way to do this. This This is the real version of grep right here, and then you go to a different system and you realize you're not dealing with that version of grep, and there's a completely valid other version with different options or different abilities, and you kind of need to get to know that, and if you don't need to get to know it, then at least you have to know how to adapt to it. That's a real skill, uh, and it's, I think it's an important one, it really is, because uh, if, you, if you get really good on one system, like let's say Linux, you get really good at Linux, and then you you get, you get plopped in front of a, of a BSD system or, or something, and suddenly you're at a loss. You just don't know what to do, because that one command that you need to run right now isn't working. And oh my gosh, how do, how do you learn a new command again? What was that workflow? Like, how do we do that? It, it's a skill that you have to kind of keep, you have to keep nurturing. So anyway, that's what InRoth sort of made me think about, and it's not exactly the same. But I think it's related. I think there's something there. Okay, next command is PDF Roth. and that creates PDF documents using Groff. PDF Roth is a wrapper program for Graph. It transparently handles the mechanisms and multiple passes of Groff processing when you're trying to turn something into a PDF. So once again, it's, it's essentially a front end for Groff Dash capital T, PDF, and it tries to handle things that would otherwise have to be manual options that you would put into, uh, you know, you'd have to type that out yourself, and it tries to handle that for you. Okay, next is PFB to PS. This translates a postscript font, which is a .pfb file, to ASCII, which as far as I know, doesn't, it doesn't mean, it doesn't, it's not saying it's going to take that font and turn it into ASCII, I mean, there's, there's not really an ASCII font, I mean, there is, there are ASCII fonts there are fonts for for terminals and stuff but as far as I know it what it's saying is that it will take that postscript font and translate it to postscript which of course you can view in an ASCII terminal and this is as I've said several times before I don't know why you'd be doing this I don't know why you would have such a font I don't know why you would care about it but if you did that would be the program that you would want to look at let's talk a little bit about pic pic this is a big big thing I, I, I'm not going to belabor it because it it gets it it can be a big topic and I don't feel like it is something that is worth really dwelling on. But it's something to be aware of if you're going to use Groff. So pick is a, uh, a, a a the formatting engine for including graphics in a Groff document. You invoke PIC more often than you realize when you are using Groff because. You, like, if you're outputting to, a, well, for instance, a lily pond graphic, and you're outputting that to PDF, you're invoking pic, because pic is gonna be the thing that draws that content box that, that you won't see, but that, that's... It, it makes space in the graph document for that graphic. It makes sure that all those pixels get arranged in the right position, as dictated by the lily pond format, and so on. So it is a, you, you could think of it as a picture viewer embedded within a graph uh, document, or, or rather a picture viewer embedded in the output of a graph document. Or you could just view it as a canvas, I guess. That would be the, the very, like if you're into web and even GUI programming, you might think of, okay, well I know I have this canvas, I want to draw on it, and whether I'm, talking to a macro saying, hey, load this png into that canvas space, into that area, or whether I'm actually issuing commands for pixels to be rendered. And so there is a there's a language that you could use in pic. So for instance, if you dot, did a .ps request and then wrote something like circle at parentheses 1, comma 2, close parentheses, circle at parentheses 3, comma 4, close parentheses, Box.pe, then when you run graph2pdf or graph2ps or or whatever, then you'll see an illustration there, probably of two circles, I would imagine. So that's what pic does, really. And the the man page is definitely interesting, and it it goes over sort of some of the syntax. And there's there's quite a lot of syntax. I mean, you've got um you've got Fairly advanced drawing functions that you can you can invoke. You know the sine and the cosine and the square root, uh, the a random integer between one and zero or a zero and one rather, and so on. So there's you know there's a language there that you can embed into a pick a, a pick a request or a, or a pick well yeah a pick request and then you run that through the pick macro and it does all the work that it needs to do in order to make that appear in whatever your your output is So that's that's pick that was written by the way by from what I can tell Brian Kernigan so it, it, it has a pretty nice pedigree uh, but I, I don't it's not a language I intend to learn myself. okay next up is pick to graph convert a PIC diagram into a cropped image. It reads a PIC program as the input, and then produces an image file, um, by default a PNG, from from that input. So this is the same series of uh, scripts as EQN into graph, grops to graph, and obviously this one, PIC to graph so it is it's the same kind of translator it'll take that input it'll decode it and it sends it out to image magic specifically and you can control how the output occurs with image magic switches so dash density 300 for a high res image or a you know, somewhat high-res image, certainly higher res than uh, the default of density 72 or 96 or 100 or whatever we're up to lately. The next commands are pretty easy because they explicitly say they're not meant to be called as a standalone binary, but that they are a part of the Groff pipeline to produce HTML output. Those are post-grow HTML and pre-grow HTML. So I'm not going to cover those because those aren't for us. Let's take a look at preconv. This converts a file from into a format that graph can understand. So for instance, it's just really super simple example here. If I open up a file called test.graph and I paste in or or type in uh, using my fancy foreign character generator thing, uh, compose key, I think is what it's called. If I type in a smiley face, which I hit compose key, colon, uh, parentheses, I get a smiley face Unicode character. I'll save that and then run preconv on test.graph. And as my output, I get a backslash bracket U263A close bracket, which I assume is a valid Unicode or, or yeah, Unicode code uh, for a smiley face. That is preconv. Refer, we've already talked to. And then there's a bunch of little scripts here called Roth. To something, roff to DVI, roff to HTML, to PDF, to PS, to text, to X, and so on. Um, those are, as you can imagine, scripts to translate roff files into some other format. Roff code into PDF, roff code into DVI, and so on. Um, could you do it with Groff?er Yes, you could usually. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure what the the selling point of these specific commands are. I don't know if they were things that people had gotten used to at some point, and when Groff came out, maybe it it supplanted them, but wanted to make sort of that same workflow available. I'm just not sure. But it's um... these are, are yet again other ways to a, a very similar similar result. So elam, that's the name of a command. So so elam does a um, it, it sources, it helps you source file, or rather process source files. So the normal processing sequence of graph, and this is kind of what I was referring to, I think in the previous episode, when I was commenting on how the workflow of graph seems a little bit fragile sometimes, where it's like, well, if you run this preprocessor before you run this trough command, then you might run into problems and so on, and that can be problematic, I imagine. So so elim makes that more flexible. The normal sequence would be your preprocessor, which would look at your input file and it would pass the output onto trough, or, or groff. And at that point, if you had a file that was being sourced into your groff document, that's when that would happen during that groff s- stage. And then it would maybe pass on to a postprocessor if there was one, and and it would do the output. With so elim, you can. Ingest, as it were, your input file and your sourced file all at once. Combine them. Send it over to the preprocessor. Send it over to graph, Send it over to the postprocessor, and then you get your output file. An analogy to this, for me at least, would be that when I'm constructing a a, a, a volume in DocBook, very often I compose. Different chapters in different as different files makes it a little bit more manageable, I think. But in order to process all of those files into a a single file, I have to either concatenate them together or use x includes some other way of getting that text together. Now, if I use a x include, I have to include that x include namespace in my document. That's fine, but then I have to tell xsltproc the thing that's going to process my my xml and and combine it with my style sheet, I have to tell it to, to process xincludes. Otherwise, it just sees a, a document with very little content, like six lines of x includes. Now, of course, my intent is for each x include line to source a file such that I'm building this larger volume of text. But if xsltproc doesn't know to respect the xinclude commands, then it wouldn't do that. And that's kind of what soelim provides for for graph. All right, formatting tables. This is a horrible, horrible process. Tables um, almost invariably just shouldn't be used, um, but grof does have a system by which you can write tables. I, I can't tell you how much trouble tables have caused me in my my life so i highly recommend against them if you're thinking about generating a table think again seriously think about it think about it carefully and ask yourself can it be restructured as a list lists are much easier to render for different kinds of displays it's i I recommend it head and shoulders above a table Uh, and in that spirit i'm i'm not going to give too much time to the table formatter for graph but i will tell you it opens up with a .ts table start, I guess .ts. It closes with a .te. And there's a bunch of different notation trying to help you format a table in plain text, which is a miserable, miserable experience. And you should spare yourself that 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 pain by not doing it. Really, you should use um, you should use something else. You should use a list. Uh, I, I know that there are exceptions to that, but but they're fewer than you think. Uh, as someone who has converted many a table to lists quite effectively. I I can vouch for this. The table uh, macro does have, it is quite flexible. I mean, but then again, so is the markdown table uh, format, and so is the HTML table format. I mean, they're all equally bad in the end. They render a table that no one knows how to render correctly. You either get the columns too thin or too wide, or you cut off part of the table, or you split the table across several pages and it stops to make sense. It's just, it's, I realize that sometimes tables are a good analog calculator front end, but generally speaking, I urge you to reconsider. Okay, next up is TFM2DIT, which creates a font file for use with graph-T DVI. Once again, in real life, this is probably not necessary. You have so many fonts to choose from now, I don't see why you would have to go about converting fonts at, in this year, so I'm going to skip it. Hey, speaking things uh, of things to to skip, there's x 2 trough, which converts x font metrics into GNUtroph font metrics. Again, you shouldn't need to do this. This is not something that that is generally speaking necessary. You can, if you want to, I don't know, rescue old old font formats or something, but but generally speaking, this just isn't necessary. And then finally, last and certainly not least, I guess, but kind of least in a way, is trough itself. This is not the non-free version of trough. Obviously, this is still GNU trough, but um, it's it's kind of the, I guess, apparently, the actual processor portion of the groff workflow. It's not intended to be used alone. It is generally meant to be used with groff. So you should be executing groff, which will do all the pre-processing and post-processing with trough thrown in there when necessary. Um, but the, it is, this is nevertheless a separate binary on your system. If you look in US, USR bin, you'll see groff and trough are actually independent applications. But nevertheless, it says very clearly in the man page, it's not meant for you to run this on its own. You're, you're meant to invoke grof and let it run this trough binary or, or invoke the the trough binary, uh, as appropriate. Uh, given that information, I'm not going to obviously cover this, because you'll just be using groff. And it does seem like there's a lot of, um, there, are, there are a lot of cases where that's kind of um, the situation, where, where really, ultimately, you're not, you know, there's a lot of front-ends, and a lot of, sort of, pre-processors, and things that you don't necessarily, you're not going to be really using yourself, and you'll just let groff kind of magically take care of for you and that's fine or or you'll be you'll be running one of these aliases but you'll know in the back of your mind that you're actually just invoking groff with a couple of options that you didn't want to bother putting in yourself which is fine and that brings us to a close on the groff overview that's everything in groff i think as i've said it's a fascinating little system i don't know that i'll use it ever but it definitely seems a lot less scary now that i i see the logic behind it and frankly you kind of can't argue with a tool chain as complete as this that just happens to be built into your system already so check out groff maybe i guess or not depends on what you what you need uh, in your word processing uh, requirements but it's definitely it's fun it's interesting so give it a look or if you don't don't be scared of it anymore. It's, it's just another processor for text. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Of course, you can email me at klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's klaatu at member.fsf, as in Foundation.org. And, of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. something I just don't understand. How can it either be there or not? Why isn't there any in-between?